Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk today with Atlantic senior editor Van Newkirk II, who has a new podcast that looks at the uprisings that occurred 55 years ago after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Holy Week, which takes us through the span of the civil rights movement in eight episodes, wonders in particular what might have happened to America had MLK not been assassinated in 1968. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Michigan School of Psychology and the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDE. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you decided to join us today. 1968 is such a pivotal year in American history, and for so many reasons. You have the assassinations of both Robert Kennedy, who was running for president, and Martin Luther King Jr. You also had the passage of the Fair Housing Act, and the massive uprisings that followed the King killing. 1968 really marks a turn away from the momentum that had been building around the civil rights and the poor people's movements. And it marks an entree into a more conservative era filled with backlash that endured for several decades after. But what would have happened if Dr. King, in particular, hadn't died. At the end of his life, he had leaned more strongly into work that was importantly related to the things he was trying to do in the civil rights movement. And he was gaining strength to inspire even more change than he already had. And if 1968 doesn't happen, it's really fascinating to think of what might have been possible. What kinds of economic liberation might all Americans, black and otherwise, be enjoying today? What kinds of discussions and action might have taken place to build on the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Fair Housing Act, really the last major piece of civil rights era legislation, which passed in 1968? What levers might Americans have agreed to wrap their hands around into the 1970s and beyond to make America a more just and fair place. This is the story that Atlantic senior editor Van Newkirk II explores in his new podcast called Holy Week. The podcast, which was recently released, talks with people who were caught in the uprisings, student activists pushing for justice, government bureaucrats who were dealing with the political fallout, and many others who were trying to create a more perfect union in the late 1960s. In the series, Van explicitly wonders what would have happened if those uprisings led to more policy changes instead of backlash? What would it mean for America to have things like a jobs guarantee or a zero poverty rate? What, in other words, would America look like today if Martin Luther King's vision had been fully embraced rather than snuffed out so violently on a hotel balcony in Memphis? That's where we begin the conversation today with that question. And we've got Van Newkirk here with us to discuss. Van, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you start this podcast in a really interesting way. It is with the Apollo 6 mission, which is the last unmanned mission before we start putting people uh, into space to go to the moon, which is uh, achieved uh, in the late 
1960s. So let's talk about why you start there in discussing King's assassination and the consequential uh, uprisings. Well, I was thinking about just how much this event of King's killing disrupted uh, what was happening in America. And so basically I tried to do this thought exercise where I tried to imagine what would be the leading story if King had not been killed. And so Apollo 6 was launched on that day. And if you do a little bit of uh, extrapolation, you can really think maybe that it would have been a bigger story. Maybe the space race would have taken a larger sort of portion of the American imagination there. Uh, and I don't know, it, it, for me, it got me in and should get the listener in the space of imagining, of thinking about just how disruptive and uh, sort of diverting this moment and the week that followed were. Um, in your mind, when do most people think the civil rights movement begins and when does it end? And I asked that uh, in large measure because of the things I was talking about in the open, this, this focus on 1968 and the pivotal things that happened this year. And then, of course, the things that don't happen for many, many years after. The, 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 what are the bookends in your mind of the civil rights movement? Yeah, so I think the story is usually told. Uh, it starts, if, you, if you're lucky, if you get a good history, it starts <laughs> in Montgomery or even with uh, Emmett Till's killing. In, um, and it starts in 55, and you sort of get a 10-year period, right? So you get from 55 through, uh, you get the March on Washington, the I Have a Dream speech. You got Birmingham, um, you get Selma. 1964, um, first you get 1964 in Freedom Summer, then Selma, then the Voting Rights Act. And that's kind of the story that uh, is usually packed into most history books. Um, if you ask an average American sort of what were the major moments in that movement, I think they would pick some collection of those. Uh, you don't really hear much about what happens after 65 at all, mm -hmm. of what's going on with the members of the nonviolent movement, what's happening with uh, the really insurgent um, people who are radicals. And uh, that leaves sort of a discontinuity when you think about when did the movement actually end? And and let's talk about 68. Uh, as I said, it's not just the King assassination that happens that year, but also I think really importantly, the, the assassination of, of Robert Kennedy, who... Uh, was running for president on a, a really progressive platform. But you also have the passage of the Fair Housing Act, which is really the last piece uh, of the the major civil rights era uh, legislation. Um, what is it about what is it about that year? what What is it about that assassination in Memphis uh, that, in your mind, really sends things just in a in a different and more awful direction? Yeah, so I think you have to look into um, what, what happened going into 68, too. So the movement was already in a pretty precarious place. You had summers of riots for four summers, including Detroit, mm -hmm. um, leading up to 68. Uh, you had a national response and public opinion that was clearly moving out of alignment with civil rights. A lot of the organizations depended on um, fundraising and donations from up north, from uh, white folks, and a lot of that money was drying up. So going into 68, uh, there, are, there already were lots of questions about the viability of what King in particular was trying to do. So he's killed in April. Um, then you have the passage of the Fair Housing Act, which itself engendered lots of uh, backlash mm -hmm. among white suburbanites who did not want to share their neighborhoods with uh, black folks. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you have in that summer, uh, Robert F. Kennedy is running basically on a platform that picks up a lot of what King wanted to do. He wants to implement this sweeping uh, reforms, this injection of money into black neighborhoods, and he's assassinated. So there's a series of hammer blows, really, to people who believed that America could be transformed um, through existing institutions, through nonviolent movement, 
essentially all of these icons of hope, all of the ways that they had already, that they accustomed to changing America, they become much less viable in the span of five, six months. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, we, we lean then into an era of, I think, incredible backlash, right? Uh, there is not just a backlash to the uprisings that, that, uh, that happen and, and I guess intensify as a result of the King assassination, but it's, it's a response to the progress that had been made already. I mean, there, there is almost an, uh, un, unveiling, I guess, of of the incredible amount of hostility that existed to that progress, uh, and and America goes in a really radically different uh, direction by November, uh, for instance, of 1968, when when Richard Nixon is elected president, and and uh, a conservative era is is kind of born. Yeah, you look at um, King's own popularity when he was killed, and he was sitting sitting at thirty to forty percent approval uh, in the mid twenties with white folks, actually. And they did uh, CBS actually did opinion polling uh, during and after the riots that followed, and the majority of white Americans did not believe that even peaceful protest was acceptable anymore. Uh, for uh, changing the conditions of Black Americans. Uh, you saw significant uh, increases in uh, people who believed that the problems of Black America were essentially Black America's fault. And you had a candidate, Richard Nixon, uh, and his vice president, Spiro Agnew, uh, then the governor of Maryland, mm-hmm. who basically ran on a platform of, uh, okay, we, we, we did the civil rights thing, um, we got we got the laws that people wanted, and now the thing that people are asking for is law and order, and we're going to give you that. I'm talking with Van Newkirk uh, the second. He is a senior editor at The Atlantic. He recently produced an eight-episode podcast called Holy Week. It is on the uprisings that occurred after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination uh, in Memphis. It really leans into the question of what might have happened in America, what might have been possible in America, had that assassination not taken place, uh, had the civil rights movement, which was still uh, underway at that point, uh, not been really kind of snuffed out uh, with the killing of Dr. King. Uh, We'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know how you interpret The uprisings that happened after Martin Luther King's death. Were you somebody who was around during that era and remember those things? Uh, What was it like to live through that time? Uh, And has your mind changed about how you view that era and the end of the civil rights movement now that we're some 55 years later? Uh, do you think that the, the the era that follows is shaped by backlash to uh, the civil rights era? And how do you relate that to now? How do you relate that to the conversations that we're having uh, about uh, civil rights, really, uh, still today? How the, 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 the uprisings in 2020 after George Floyd is murdered by a Minnesota a police officer, uh, all of the things that we still are really struggling with at the kind of center of our culture in this uh, in this country. 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. So uh, I want to talk more specifically about the podcast, Van. Uh, your podcast follows the story of a man named Vincent who was part of the uprisings or at least got trapped within them. Talk about who Vincent was and why you followed this story and that of his families uh, as the the spine for uh, this story. Yeah, so uh, we followed the story of uh, Vincent Lawson, who was a 14-year-old boy uh, who grew up in Washington, D.C., and uh, his sister, uh, she was uh, very generous with her, t- uh, her so- his sister, Vanessa, uh, she tells us a story about how they grew up in uh, H Street 
in DC. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a locus of unrest and uprising in DC after the assassination. Uh, and so her older brother, Vincent, he went out uh, that night. Um, they had recently, they'd suffered some pretty serious hardship, uh, the family. They'd been moved over um, to the East Capitol projects. Um, they, their, fam- their parents had been divorced. Uh, they never had a lot of money, but I think they were truly experiencing uh, what we would call poverty. And uh, essentially, her brother went, uh, everybody was out in the streets. Um, you had people going and breaking the stores. Um, and her brother went to Morton's department store. And oh, in the course of his looting and got his mother a box, two boxes of stockings. Uh, because she couldn't afford the whole boxes. Mm-hmm. And to me, that moment um, and that choice, it helps understand what's really happening. You had a a lot of people just saying, these are criminals on the streets, or a lot of people now, um, you know, apply really broad sort of political interpretations of the uprisings. Um, but it it, it changes when you actually hear and see the motivations of people who are inside them. And this was a boy who, you know, went out and got his mom some stockings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You got tape of kids talking about these uprisings as they were happening and of teachers interpreting what those uh, kids were saying. And I, and I bring that up because, you know, Vincent is, is uh, a child. I want to listen to a clip first of that and then get you to, to talk a little more about uh, why, why, you chose, uh, why you chose that. Uh, this is a, a clip of uh, teachers interpreting her students' reactions to the uprisings. Yes, uh, when we asked children, the saddest thing that they saw, one child in the first grade responded that he was very sad when he saw three Negro boys beat up a white man and stab him. And then we asked also, what was the happiest thing that you saw? And children said people helping each other, giving them food and things of this type. Um, there's something about that that uh, clip that, that I think really stands out in, in my mind. But I, I really want to get your, your reaction to, to what that teacher is saying there. Yeah, the reason why I thought this tape was so important, number one, I think it's easy to forget that in all of these uprisings, riots, whatever you want to call them, in 68 and in the 60s in general, most of the participants were children. They were teenagers. They were uh, people who were still, who were going to school, trying to make meaning of the world. And So for me, when I hear these teachers talking about, again, children, I want to make sure I'm calling them boys and girls, children. Um, And you hear just the basic desires for um, having clean neighborhoods, for for having a peace and a a, a peace of mind and a sense of security. Um, And you hear even then, even for them, how conflicted they are about, about the riots, about the burning about, um, you know, they're not talking about really about the poor people's campaign or, or what's happening in, in on Capitol Hill. They're not talking about policy. They're talking about the basic conditions of their lives and what they want as children. And I think we, we want to have that in front of us always when we go back and look at this time and when we think about these uprisings during the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Van Newkirk of The Atlantic. Uh, We'll start to get to you, our listeners as well. Levi and Southfield, Val in Detroit. You'll be up first on the phones. If you want to join them, of course, 313-577-1019 is the number here. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the show that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. I'm glad you've joined us. Our guest today is Van Newkirk II. He is a senior editor at The Atlantic, and he recently produced an eight-episode podcast called Holy Week. It is about the uprisings that occurred after Martin Luther King's assassination in Memphis in 1968. It imagines what America might be like, what might have been possible if that assassination hadn't taken place, if it hadn't sent the country in a radically different direction than it seemed to be headed during much of the 1960s. We want to hear from you as well during the conversation. What do you make of that era of the 1960s and the civil rights legislation and victories that were happening? And how do you think they relate to the current era? Uh, 55 years later, we're still talking about a lot of the things that Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr. was talking about in the 60s. Uh, We're still grappling with not only Uh, racial inequality, but also economic and other kinds of injustices. Uh, What what would we be thinking of? What would we be doing if all of that hadn't stopped so suddenly uh, in the late 1960s? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you that way. Let's start today with uh, Levi in Southfield. Levi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, semantics are so so important and so interesting. Um, during the break, they were referring to January 6th as uh, insurrection. And, and you'll hear people not call it an insurrection. They'll call it uh, a normal day of tourism. And, and going back to the 60s that we're talking about today, uh, I come from white America, and so uh, we call it a riot. And Vernon uh, originally was calling it a riot, and then during the during the uh, uh, interview, he changed uprising to to be the same as the word you were using. So, I uh, just wanted to ask the speaker, uh, you know, the difference between a riot and an uprising, and how do we know what's what? Mm. Uh, Levi, it's a fair question. I mean, I'll I'll start by talking about why I use the word uprising for what happened in uh, the late 1960s. Uh, I mean, let's start here in Detroit. Um, what happened in 1967 in in the late summer was a response, a specific response to uh, incidents of police brutality that are undisputed, um, that, that were not just taking place at the, at the point, at inflection point where uh, African-American Detroiters uh, start to push back, but had been going on for years. Uh, and uh, I, I think one of the difficulties in trying to sort through that terminology is the incomplete telling of that history, right? Uh, things get characterized uh, in piecemeal ways that are designed to make it look like well, these people have just lost their minds and are destroying their community and ours. Uh, but of course, the fuller context of what was happening does make sense as an uprising. It was a uh, decided pushback against an injustice. Now, that's really different, uh, in my mind, uh, from something like January 6th, which was inspired uh, by you know the the institutional uh, changing of power, handoff of power uh, in our in our country, uh, there wasn't an injustice uh, to the people who showed up at the Capitol on January sixth that inspired them. Rather, it was the democracy that uh, I think all of us uh, need and cherish uh, to be able to, to to live together. So. That's the distinction for me, um, but but Van is talking about this in much broader terms than Detroit, so I'll give him a chance to, to talk about it uh, in that context. Yeah, so I, I put a lot of thought into um, how we described um, these movements, particularly because riot in our current modern parlance, it only is pejorative because it's been associated with black communities. Uh, so in history, we have a number of uh, things that are described as riots, 
that turned out to be revolutionary, that are considered, um, you know, legitimate political action. You've got the bread riots in, um, in, in, in lots of places. You've got riots on the streets in uh, pre-revolutionary Russia. Um, those don't have the same negative connotation as when you talk about a black neighborhood rioting. So for me, I wanted to challenge um, that negative connotation in the first place. But I mostly use riot and uprising interchangeably depending on where my vantage is. Hmm. So most people who I talked to who were on the streets, they described what they did as rioting. And for me, it's important as a journalist, as a, as a reporter first, not to go and override how they described how they acted with any of my own modern or, you know, political considerations. But when I'm looking backwards and I look at sort of the larger phenomenon as a whole and how it affected America, I think, uh, basically you're right. You know, we're, we're talking about uprising. We're talking about things that ended up that were political and were received politically. And I think, and were responses to oppression, a system of oppression. So I think it's, it's, it's right to characterize them on the whole as uprising. And, and the analogy that gets drawn between the sentiment that's driving these uprisings and what Levi was talking about on January 6th, where you did have people who believed they were responding to an injustice, right? Uh, uh, the, the folks who showed up at the Capitol would say they were uh, pushing back against a, a stolen, quote-unquote, uh, election. I mean, I I believe that, that you've got to deal with facts and you've got to deal with, with what's what's real. Um, and I, I, I think it's a strained analogy to compare the uprisings of the 1960s to, to what happened on January 6th. But I, but I do understand that difficulty. And I think uh, that is one of the things that, um, that divides us as, as black and white Americans. Yeah. And an insurrection is specifically an organized revolt against a political system. Right. And that is what January 6th was. Yes. Yes. Um, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Val in Detroit. Val, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Stephen. Hey. Uh, a couple of comments. Uh, one of the reasons I think that we saw the reaction that we did after loss of Martin Luther King is during that time we lost so much of our leadership. I don't know the chronological order, but we lost uh, Malcolm X. We lost Mecker Evers. We lost Fred Hampton. We lost people who were actually creating leadership and represented black America. So it's no different than you having all the men wiped out in your family and you're left vulnerable mm -hmm. as a culture. And we also saw how our culture started to uh, disintegrate after the 60s. We saw drugs in our neighborhood. We saw more prostitution. We saw a lack of respect for elders and women. I mean, it just changed the whole fabric of who we were. And I think that was just from a sense of loss and not having any focus or purpose. Mm. Uh, Val, I, I really love that you called and, and made that point. Again, Van, the context here of the King uh, assassination uh, is the, 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 the era of assassinations. I mean, if you think of all of uh, the people who were assassinated in the 1960s and all of the African-Americans who were part of uh, the civil rights or, or the black power movement that uh, that were assassinated, it does help explain some of what we see uh, from black Americans uh, when this happens. Yeah, I think if you looked at a similar movement happening in another country and you saw over 10 years the just slate of assassinations uh, and killings of leadership in that movement, you can understand, you know, this is a brutally oppressed segment of the population and one where uh, the government is sort of actively, uh, if not sponsoring, actively enabling uh, those killings. So, yeah, you, you, I think Val just named uh, a good portion of the leadership. If you have a movement centered in Mississippi uh, that uh, is trying to, you know, you've got a faction in New York where a lot of the fundraising and intellectual movement comes from. You've got uh, a nonviolent movement that is centered in the South and you have 
Medgar Evers, who was killed, who is an extraordinary personality and, and, and movement maker. You have Malcolm X, who was killed. You then go down the line and you have these, going up until King, uh, you have people who are considered martyrs of the movement every single year. And that is, it's not just a psychic or symbolic blow. Those are people with organizing know-how, mm-hmm. with experience, uh, people who are familiar with all the different uh, fundraising mechanisms to make the machine work, and uh, they are targeted for that reason. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to pause there uh, and drill down a little bit more on some of the complication that um, that surrounds King and who he was and what he represented uh, at the time. And one thing that comes up in the podcast is the idea that King was protecting white people and the, the, the resistance to black progress because he was promoting nonviolence, uh, which was probably kind of weird to white Americans at the time since he was being investigated by the FBI and considered a threat. But, but that, that, that just goes to, I think, the real complication of, of King as, uh, as an American figure and our misunderstanding, our, our longtime misunderstanding of that, of that complication. But I want to play a clip of Jesse Jackson talking about what it meant uh, when King was killed, in that sense of what it meant to white Americans, and get your uh, your exposition of of what this means. There were those who never believed in nonviolence because they never understood the depth of that method of solving problems in the world. Dr. King was by far the most articulate spokesman on earth in that regards, and to some extent, Dr. King has been a buffer the last few years between the black community and the white community. White people do not know it, but the white people's best friend is dead. That's such a powerful quote uh, when he says that the white people's best friend is dead, and there's some irony, of course, uh, uh, in 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 the statement that he's making. But talk about that that role that King had been playing, the role that he shifts to at the end of his life, and then what his assassination, therefore, means to black and white people um, uh, alike. Yeah, so I thought it was really important to include that clip because I think it gets to the heart of the show. Um, King himself believed that nonviolence was kind of the last best hope for reconciliation without blood in America. Um, He believed it was so urgent because... If it failed, if that project failed, there wouldn't be other options. And so he uh, he built that movement into a symbol of hope for black Americans, even those who didn't believe it in, uh, uh, agree with him. Mm-hmm. He built that movement into a symbol of hope that things could be better uh, and that people could expect. This is a radical notion, actually, for black Americans, that black Americans uh, born could expect their children born in the 60s to have a better life than they could. And that is a absolutely unprecedented, really, notion for black Americans in America until that decade. And so when he is killed, that symbol of that type of hope that is so radical and transformative, it is it, it, it dies with him in, in a sense. And so. You see Jesse Jackson essentially going out and looking in the streets. The riots haven't even yet started. Um, and he understands that uh, the the dam is broken, mm-hmm. in, a, in a sense. Um, that there is, if you don't have that symbol of hope, what you have left is you have people who are frustrated, who have been told uh, time and time again, often by the civil rights leadership, that things will be better, that we will overcome. And now they're seeing... Okay, what happens if we don't? Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. 
Uh, and when we come back, we'll continue talking with Van Newkirk about uh, his new eight-episode podcast, Holy Week. Also, continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Regetta in Detroit, you'll be up next. If you want to join her, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. Also, go to Twitter. Hashtag us, and we can include you in the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you've joined. Our guest is Van Newkirk. He's a senior editor for The Atlantic and recently produced an eight-episode podcast called Holy Week on the uprisings that occurred after Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis in 1968. We're talking about what might have happened if that had not happened. Uh, what kinds of progress might have been possible on the civil rights front, uh, on the economic inequality front, had uh, had that violent act not really changed the way that America really thought about uh, the civil rights progress uh, that had been made during the 1960s. We want to hear from you on the phones, uh, what your sense of that era was, of the consequences of that era. Uh, also, how does it relate to now? How does it relate to the things that we are still talking about on the inequality front here in America. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and work you into the conversation. Van, I I do want to have you talk uh, a little about the relationship between this era that you're looking at in the podcast and the discussions that we are having today. Um, You describe 1968 as kind of a missed opportunity that that we could have gone in a really different direction. Are you worried that we're in the midst of another missed opportunity in the wake of, of course, George Floyd's murder and uh, the coalescing of Black Lives Matter around that killing and the demand for still more equality in America. Are we at risk of, I guess, repeating the same error or are things really different this time? Well, you never want to make two uh, direct comparisons between eras because there's a lot of differences. You know, mm-hmm. we got a lot of different technologies today. Politics are slightly different. But you look at when I read stories about all these billions of dollars that were promised uh, in the wake of George Floyd's murder uh, by companies, and I look at uh, this you know wave of DEI hirings, uh, you look at a lot of uh, places that were sort of uh, hiring heavy on those ends. They've started laying those people off. Uh, the money hasn't come through. You've got uh, a really strong, um, can use the term backlash often. I think you, you it's safe to say there is a strong political backlash to uh, 2020 to uh, that sort of piled on top of the backlash to uh, the Obama presidency. Um, yeah, I think you've got a lot of the same dynamics that are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, which way it goes from here? Nobody, I don't think I know. Um, but I look back and I see just how quickly, uh, it's just remarkable how quickly the world changed in 68. And I think that's something that we should always have in front of us, that there are these tipping points. Um, there are these times when these uh, undercurrents uh, sort of become the currents. And we have to always keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Um, I, I want to have you just for a second compare um, the, the 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 things that that still are undone, I guess, uh, 
1968, like I said um, in the open, you know, we, we've passed the Fair Housing Act. That is a kind of completion, I guess, of the of the civil rights era legislation to come out of Washington. Uh, in 2020, we've had, uh, you know, almost 50 years or more than 50 years of those things being on the books. Uh, so, so talk about what is different. What's the difference in that opportunity in 2020 than it was in, in 1968? How much of what was accomplished before 68 really frames the, the things that we're dealing with now? Well, I think it's helpful to go back and look at um, just what King thought was needed to um, accomplish his life's work uh, that was in front of him. So he wanted essentially poverty to be eliminated in America. Mm -hmm. He wanted uh, essentially the transformation of the black ghettos. He wanted black people to be able to have, not just be able to move into white neighborhoods, but to, to be able to live in wherever they chose in safe healthy neighborhoods to be able to build wealth to have jobs um to uh, he wanted universal health care he wanted uh, an end to unjust and unequal exposures to pollution he was looking at the big picture so you look at all the things on that list that have not been accomplished i believe it's all of them um and <laughs> That's right. um uh, checking back, I think it's all of them. And so, uh, and also there's a couple other things that have uh, been added to that list that have compounded. So he, there wasn't really the same exact uh, urban kind of uh, mass incarceration back then. Right. And now the cities have been somewhat inverted uh, and people have been displaced to uh, low-income suburbs. So you also do want to make sure that we are cognizant of the, and keep in front of us the real changes that have come about from the bills you mentioned. So now uh, my mother, when she was born, my grandmother wasn't allowed to vote in Mississippi. That's mm -hmm. something I always want to make sure I like remember because mm -hmm. my grandma can go vote now. And that's amazing. That's an amazing change. Uh, you look at um, things like educational attainment, the ability to go to integrated schools, those are big deals today. Um, but things like wealth, uh, the wealth gap has stagnated. Uh, environmental injustice and exposure, unequal exposure to uh, pollution, to heat, uh, to climate risks, they appear to be widening. So I think we've we've got to always want to honor the work of people who uh, put their lives on the line and often did give their lives for uh, these changes and then the world that a lot of people take for granted today. But we also want to make sure the challenges are in front of us as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Regetta in Detroit. Regetta, what's on your mind? Hi, I'm, it's a double question, but I'll start it with an answer about what to do since uh, the uh, George Floyd's uh, uh, <laughs> Since he was killed, and mm -hmm. I would say to rotate boycotts, rotate boycotts. Uh, but going back to the riots where I was a teenager, when those events happened, mm -hmm. it occurred to me, nobody burns the places where they live. So it's stupid to assume that it was black folk to set fires to those commercial dwellings uh, that were substandard anyway. I would think that you... I, I have yet to see a report about who were the financial beneficiaries of those buildings being burned. Mm. We did not hold the paper to those buildings. And I keep hearing the myth regurgitated throughout the country that black folks set those fires. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying black folks didn't loot, but the people who own those buildings looted the black community financially with substandard products and services. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm saying... Dig a little deeper and find out who held the insurance on those buildings, and you'll find out who set fires to the city. And it wasn't black folk. And another thing, in Detroit, the myth is perpetuated that the police raided the blind pig. It wasn't the police who did that. It was the FBI. Detroiters need to sue the FBI for doing that. And if you doubt what I'm saying, all you have to do 
is go to the government printing office in Washington, D.C., and ask for the report on domestic terrorism. Mm. Back in, I think it was seventy five so, when they held those hearings. Yeah, so Regina, I, I think a really interesting. That's a really interesting point. I've heard people make that point before that it wasn't, you know, uh, police. That that it was another agency. It, maybe the FBI. I've heard some others as well that 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 did that. Uh, I, I think you know, again, truth is important, and we ought to be always looking for it. Um, I, I I'm not sure. That I think it matters much which agency was doing it because uh, the the truth was that this was a pattern in Detroit uh, and it was Detroit police uh, who were were absolutely engaged in that pattern for a really long time on a systematic basis of harassing uh, African Americans, uh, you know, where they lived, where they worked, where they recreated, uh, where they had fun. So. I mean, I think that's the point that that kind of uh, sticks out more than than any other. But I do want to have Vianne uh, address this question of financial benefit from the uprisings or the riots or whatever you want to call them uh, of, of that era, and th- this question about uh, black people and whether they set the fires and whether we destroyed our own communities. That's a theme that comes up. Over and over again, we had another caller that, that uh, brought it up in a different context. Uh, Van, what's the answer to Regetta's questions? So all I have is, you know, what I actually uh, talked to people about and what people said. And so I've got uh, black folks who were talking about uh, setting fires and what they intended to do with those fires. And uh, their own motivations and where they were in the buildings. And... So the picture I've come up with is one where essentially uh, you had a lot of people who, regardless of what, who owned what, they felt they didn't have a sense of ownership over their own surroundings. Right. And they wanted somebody to feel pain the way they felt. And that's a totally valid <laughs> way to feel. Um, and so, yeah, I talk, I, I've got the recordings of children who were talking about the fires and um, some of them even went out to go put out fires. You had a bunch of different competing motivations on the street. And um, I want to be true to those. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Regetta, I really appreciate uh, the call and and the really provocative information and and questions that uh, that you asked there. Let's go next to Peter in Detroit. Peter. Welcome to the show. Well, good morning, Stephen, and good morning to your guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I would respectfully like to push back a little bit mm-hmm. on uh, the author's thesis because I don't see the King assassination as being the cause of this move toward conservatism and law and order and, and all the rest of that. I mean, because if they were, were pushing against that, you'd have seen that. They didn't push against the assassination, they were already over the civil rights movement. It had been going on since 1955. You know, they, they felt like, hey, we've already done enough. What more do you want from us? And they were ready to turn away from it. And that enabled the, the, the assassination of King to happen without any backlash from anyone except black people. And, and they moved on to Richard Nixon and... Uh, uh, protesting about the war mm-hmm. and and anything else, uh, then moving later to the environment and, and Earth Day and all the rest of that, anything but but civil rights. They were tired of it by that time. Hmm. Uh, Peter, uh, really appreciate that perspective as well. Van, uh, go ahead and and answer the question here. Yeah, I think I mean I agree that that's actually uh, along the lines of my thesis. Yeah. Um, it, I think you look at how King was received before he was killed. He, again, he had a sub 30 approval rating among white Americans. Uh, a lot of America already had moved past what he had to offer and where he was going. So I'm not saying that King's death uh, essentially gave us the conservative era. I'm saying it was the, maybe the last thread of the old era that was, uh, you know, for a lot of people, the moment, the inflection point. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I also want to talk just a little about the way that the the sense of who King was and what he was doing has changed 
since that time. He is now often invoked as a way of criticizing African Americans today, uh, you know, for for pushing for some of the things he believed in. Right? Uh, he was a controversial figure his entire life. He has become sort of uh, a magic figure in some ways uh, in his death, and and the sense that. Um, that somehow he did not stand for the things that African-Americans want now. There's something really grossly ironic about that. Yeah. Um, every chance I get, I try to do something to combat the storybook version of King. <laughs> um, you've got a lot of people who live and die by the, you know, the, the, the content of one's character line or you know, try to cast him as this colorblind figure. I've seen people use King as an argument against uh, the idea of reparations when King, you know, was talking about reparations in his work. Mm -hmm. I've seen people use King, deploy King to argue against affirmative action. And he was one of the first proponents of affirmative action as a public policy. Um, so it, it's actually important to me to go back and just read, listen, um, and understand where he was on his own terms. Because he said it in no, he was pretty clear on what he believed needed to be done. And most of that agenda, if you go back and read, where do we go from here, chaos of or, chaos or community, um, he explicitly states what he thinks the agenda for equality in America should be. Yeah. There's a lot of things that would be considered radical today. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, Van Newkirk, it's always great to talk with you. I'm really glad you could join us to talk about Holy Week here on Detroit Today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And you can find the Holy Week podcast at The Atlantic. That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. We're going to talk with students about their experiences in high school amid the wave of mass shootings that we are experiencing in American schools. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>